Welcome back to the third episode of Maastricht Law Talk. I'm Benedict, and today we will talk about constitutions. What is a state in some aspects as well, but especially how does the state work? Every year in Ontario, thousands of people are seriously injured in car or slip and fall accidents. Recovery can be overwhelming and for many, a financial nightmare. Sir, drop your weapon, put your hands on your head and get down on the ground. You are going to be placed under arrest. We can help them get the financial compensation they deserve. That preventing a breach of the peace is a legitimate state interest. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. Constitutions. I must say, I'm personally not really a constitutional lawyer. However, uh, at my almost one and a half years here at Maastricht University, the course of comparative government was one of my favorite and also one of the uh, most successful uh, when it comes down to the grades. Good. That's good to hear. <laughs> I have, you already hear him there, Alt Wilhelm Herringer. Uh, with me, he is full professor at Maastricht University of Comparative Constitutional Administrative Law and also the head of the of the Department of Public Law here at Maastricht. Welcome. Thank you very much. You are also next to this professorship here in Maastricht, the European co-dean of the China U Law School at the China University of Political Science and Law. May you be able to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, that was a job I held in 2013. The China U School of Law is a, a EU-sponsored project. It's a joint law school, so organized in China by Chinese and Europeans, subsidized mainly by the EU. And it, the ambition is and the ambit is to train professionals in China. So we trained public prosecutors and judges and, and uh, other legal professionals and to train students as well in an English taught program um, in China with flying faculty, as we call them, from Europe and with faculty on the ground in China. So it's a very interesting uh, project. The only one at that time, it was the only one English-speaking law school in China. Now there are more. There's one in the south, in Shenzhen as well. So it's a wonder, for me a wonderful experience to be in China, to learn about Chinese constitutional law. I have a book from you here right in front of me. I think blocks means in Dutch also blocks. So yep. uh, China in block text and drawings. Yep. Um, what, what is that? Uh, what it, is your connection with China then? Did you just like it that much or do you have a deeper no, I connection? No, I lived there. Mm -hmm. And then I had a. Uh, I was asked by a magazine for Dutch lawyers called MR Meester Master Magister, which is a fancy periodical in the Netherlands, you know, <laughs> glossy periodical. Yeah. Uh, to to write regular blogs, so I started writing a blog every week or twice a week or so on daily life and living in China. And uh, my wife was with me, and she's an artist, and she well. well what can you do when you're in China and your husband is out for work? So she started drawing and making pictures of daily life. And we combined those in a, in a book. And it gives stories about daily life, about food, about how the universities are run, about having or not having a secretary of the Communist Party in the law school or about the, the building that went on or how to rent an apartment in China and move your furniture or how they clean the streets or whatever, anything. And you've added a law aspect to it. To the There's also a law about the permit to live in Beijing and about pension age and, and a tort law uh, even about accidents in China. But yes, but mainly the law from an innocent, not so biased outstander, outsider who comes there to live. And then if you look with your eyes and 
specifically pay attention to the tiny little aspects of daily life. Uh, administrative staff, when you ask them a question and they say yes, then you always have to check what <laughs> is yes. Does it mean yes or does it mean yes, I'll do it right away? And most of the time it means the first. For everyone that is interested, I will put in the description a link uh, to the publisher's website if yep. there is one available. It's a very lovely book, so people definitely take a look at that. You also wrote a PhD, I guess also in Leiden, where you studied Dutch yep. law. Yes. And this was on soziale grundrechte, which means basically constitutional social rights. Yeah. Economic, we would call it nowadays economic and social rights. So the idea was of the book to write for Dutch law, but also I already did comparative work in that book, comparing to a large extent with Germany, uh, about how... Const no, the question was if and when and how socioeconomic rights may be enforceable in courts. And the subtitle of the book read, um, The Toolkit of the Courts. Mm -hmm. So are they part of the toolkit of the courts? And to what extent can social rights be made enforceable? What are the criteria? And one of my conclusions was that in those days, this was 30 years ago, huh? that largely it was to be effectuated through pr other principles, like the equality principle. Because through equality, what you can do, law gives you an entitlement to a benefit and not me or vice versa, mm -hmm. but gives you an entitlement, not me. And then I can invoke the equality principle and try to invoke the same benefit you have. But we have seen so many recent uh, 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 developments here. Huh? The most important one, maybe you read about it, was the case in the one of the Dutch courts, which forced the government, told the government to cut down 25% on on emissions mm -hmm. because yeah. they said it's an obligation for the government to cut down on emissions. That was unimaginable in those days. So I did not predict such a judgment. And now after the development, there are distinguishable economic basic rights, basically. These it is it is a bit easier now than it was in those days, and it f happens more frequently that this kind of e economic or social rights or environmental rights are being invoked in courts. Yes, like this, uh, like this case in uh, in the Hague, the Agenda case about this twenty five percent cut down in emissions, and there was recently a case on uh, the extraction of natural gas in Groningen. Um, And the environmental impact that it has in Groningen because of the uh, occurrence of earthquakes. So yes, it's much it's easier nowadays than it was in those days, but still not very frequent. Next to what you do here in Maastricht and what you do in China, you also work together with the University of Edinburgh and they have a law school and are currently the director of the Montesquieu Institute here at Maastricht University. Yeah. And member board of the supervisor, uh, member board of supervisor for Zoidaland. As far as I understand, that's a hospital, yeah, kind of area. Are you also interested in that area? Or how did the weather on the lookout for notable personalities here in, in Limburg? <laughs> or? Of course, I should say yes, then, <laughs> because that makes me notable. <laughs> yeah, this this. Well, I like to be on, on this kind of governing bodies and, 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 and stuff. And this was, I was got a phone call because one of the, the Zuiderland Hospital is a recent merger of two hospitals. 
One in Sittard and one in Heerlen. And the Sittard Hospital in 2010 went through a tremendous crisis. It was almost bankrupt. And the board of supervisors was sacked. And there was the board of uh, the, the, the hospital board had to resign, was replaced by a new board and a new board of supervisors. And then they asked me to sit on the new board of supervisors. Uh, and then I thought, this is a really a nice challenge. Uh, so I did it. And then a couple of years later, four years later, we merged with an Heerlen Hospital and now making it into one of the biggest general hospitals in the Netherlands. Um, uh, we, I think it has in money an annual budget of 900 million or so. So it's huge. Dear listeners, as you can see, Alt Willem is a very... Um it's, it's a person with a lot of stuff going on and a lot of interests. Since we are in the Netherlands right now, I would like to start up the discussion with the question, who is more important, King Willem-Alexander, or is that Mark Rutte, for the people that don't know him, that's the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, and King Willem-Alexander, obviously the king. Yes, that's an interesting question. And as a lawyer then, and you're also studying law, then the question that I could ask you then is, what do you mean by more powerful? <laughs> do you mean having more competences, so legal powers, or being more powerful in trying to make changes in the, in, in the real world? And in powers, I would say that Mark Rutte is definitely more powerful than King Willem-Alexander, because King Willem-Alexander may seem to have quite a few things to say, and but he can only do so whenever Mark Rutte agrees with him and signs off his degrees. So the actual exercise of powers is evidently the prime minister. and But not really the prime minister, the government. So the government as meaning cabinet and ministers, the ministers. We still do have, as in the Netherlands and, for example, in the UK, several royal families or monarchies left. Yeah. That leads to one of the very important aspects of a constitutional law. Who gives, or who is the source of power to the law? The power source, basically. Yeah. And what, maybe also historically speaking, what influence did have those royal families back in the day, or maybe even today? Yes. Oof. How much time do we have? <laughs> um, it, it depends a little bit from country to country, I would say. Um, one of the issues is that in the Netherlands, the monarchy only started a bit more than 200 years ago when the predecessors had, the, the, the grandfathers, the great, great, great grandfather of William Alexander was made into a king in 1815. That is uh, indeed very young for... That's very young. Yeah. It's extremely young. Prior to that, his family played a role in Dutch history huh, in the war of the 80-year-old war against Spain about independence uh, but so it's difficult to say that this royal family played a role as being the ultimate source in history of where statehood began or where law began mm -hmm. because then we have to go back to the to the spanish kings maybe even eh? because the, the war against spain was against the spanish king yeah i think then we we can stay to the relatively near near past near past exactly uh, then I would say that in the Netherlands, at least since the, the 19th century, the rule has it that law, the source of law is uh, parliament. A little bit like the, the, the modern day conception in the UK, yeah? with the notion of sovereignty of parliament. Parliament is elected 
And that is the, the ultimate lawmaker. And if you want to have it one more abstraction higher or deeper, whatever <laughs> your point of view is, that will be the constitutional lawmaker. So who makes the constitution? Because in the end, the person or the organ or the composite organ that makes a constitution, the written basic document for a state, is the ultimate source of powers. If you take the constitution of where it all derives from, who is the lawmaker, who sets up courts, who makes an executive, that in the end is the constitution. And who makes the constitution in the Netherlands? That's parliament and the government, but parliament with a two-thirds majority. Maybe let's take a step back. What are power sources in general? What do we need power sources for um, to elaborate a bit more on really the constitutional aspects of yeah. a state? Yeah. Um, I think that goes back to quite a few philosophers and like, like Hobbes and John Locke and Montesquieu. We need state powers or we need law in order to ensure peace and tranquility and ensure a kind of absence of as Hobbes called it of war continuous struggle with your with your other citizens um, so we need it to build a a peaceful peaceful society and then you might have different perspectives one is that why should people give up their autonomy and and hand it over to a state an abstract entity well because they get something in return They get peace and criminal law in return and uh, legal certainty and certain rules. So that is for society. For the states, the, the present conception is to a large extent that why do we need law? Is that if you hand over some powers to a person, then it's a human, um, human characteristic, I believe, that in the end... Every human at some point, with the exception maybe of Gandhi and a couple of other people, uh, that every human will in the end start abusing his powers. That's a kind of natural tendency. If you have powers, then no one is going to contradict you and then you believe that you're right and that the end serves the means, etc., etc. So we need all kind of structures to limit the power exercise of those in powers. And that's, why we, that's where we need law. And we call that the rule of law. Who govern? Not the people, but the law. So legal certainty, fairness, equality, and, and similar principles. So rule of law. But isn't it in the end going, coming down to not necessarily the law governing, but the, we talked about the royal families, for example, that used to obviously have way more power back in the day. Yeah. Uh, now it's uh, maybe the parliaments. The German constitution, for example, and the, the US American lists or states the people as uh, yeah. the sovereign of everything. Yeah. And in different states, it's mm. um, it, it might be not the people, but the queen or uh, yeah. the gods. But, um, but what, what is behind that? I mean, is a, is a popular sovereignty in a state more democratic than uh, having a royal uh, as a sovereign? Yeah. I believe that those constructions like we the people or popular sovereignty, some states have theological sovereignty, yeah? like Iran. They, they're the basis of all law is probably in, 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 in their conception of their belief. That's where it originates. I believe it's more like a construction, like in the U.S. Constitution. 
uh, we the people have drafted the constitution. That was not we the people. There was a, a couple of people. <laughs> and they were truth, rich yeah. and they were famous and they were the elite. They drafted the constitution. But it's a construction, I believe, to rationalize and legitimize the powers. Huh? To say it originates somewhere. But I, I believe it's a philosophical uh, origin and much less so the formal legal source of power. That originates much more in the ultimate constitutional document. So in the end, it's not really important what it is. I think it's important for uh, to convince and to have a conversation with the electorate that they accept certain outcomes of their system because they feel that in the end, it is their system, the kind of ownership of the system. Mm -hmm. But it can also be assisted by, by your monarchy, for instance. Hey, that can play a role in giving sort of or convincing the people that they have ownership in the system. As far as I remember, however, the Dutch do not mention any kind of sovereignty no. in their constitution. What no. do the Dutch believe in then? Do they believe in whatever they want? So um, for me, that's Willem Alexander. For me, that's the people. For me, that's uh, yeah. the parliament. Yeah. Yeah. It has been proposed to add a preamble or whatever to the Dutch constitution sometimes and to add this notion of popular sovereignty. But it has never come to that. I, I don't really know why. But the, m most of the arguments were always... No, there were basically two arguments. One was, why do we need it? Is there a need? Will the constitution function better if we have a preamble which says we the people? Mm -hmm. Secondly, it had to do with a dispute between the religious parties and the other parties. And the religious party said, no, a state is also God-given. And if you have a God-given state, then the notion of popular sovereignty violates, is incompatible uh, with this, this, uh, uh, with, with their conception. There was once a political party. It was called the anti-revolutionaren, the the anti-revolution. Anti that yeah. was the French Revolution, <laughs> okay. uh, which they were opposed to because they felt it was a kind of. Um, pagan revolution so to speak, speak. so th th they didn't want the french revolution to swap onto the religious mm. basis on which dutch society was supposedly founded <laughs> which is true to some extent because the war against spain was also not only it was also an economic and financial war evidently and for power but it was also a religious conflict catholic versus protestants and protestant meaning freedom of religion so it had a religious undertone. I do know that I think in the 80s there was an extensive overhaul um, of the Dutch constitution. Um, but how old is the text that we are talking about now? The the non-mentioning. Um, how like to when does this go back? To the the, the non-mentioning of of, uh, of of sovereignty that goes back to the first constitution of the Dutch kingdom, and that is 1814. Okay. which was quickly overhauled by the constitution of 1815 mm -hmm. when the Dutch joint forces with Belgium. That is to say, the superpowers in those days, they imposed upon the Dutch to merge with Belgium to f to form a major state in the north of France eh? after the Napoleonic Wars. And the idea was what we need is a new division of, of territory in Europe. Um, and we need a strong state in the north of France so that it, in the, for the future, it won't be that easy for France to conquer those territories. Uh, so 1815... And in the later constitutions, the Belgians added it in 1830 when they became independent again. And they seceded. Uh, there was a small military conflict. They became independent. 
And then they added in their constitution a reference to popular sovereignty, but the Dutch never did. We mentioned the word constitution several times so far, um, but we have not tried to explain the idea of a constitution. I don't know. Netflix has this new show right now, The Crown, which basically just reports um, of Queen Elizabeth II getting into power. And there the question is very often the constitution, the, the common um, a constitution, which is in the UK not written down. So you can't just open the book and mm -hmm, so no. it's a custom. No. However, then we talked about the Dutch one, which is an actual text. Um, yeah. And what is a constitution? What do we need it for? Like, does it protect us for something? Or yeah. Well, if you compare a state with an association, huh? a, a, f a football club, A, 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 a organization that organizes bicycle races or whatever association or a, a group of people that regularly meet together to read books and they need a certain budget in order to have drinks whenever they discuss the books. Yeah? I mean, very basic, very down to earth. Then what you probably need is a, a structure of your organization. Who can spend the money? For what for? Do you have regular meetings? How can the, the basic document be changed? What happens if two people fight? Is there a sort of arbiter in the association? And those basic rules in an, in an association, we call them probably, you may call them constitution or, or statutes or whatever, or, or a basic document. But those rules for a state, we call those rules constitution. And then we usually say it contains the basic functioning of the state. So who may do what and when and how. Um, but gradually what we have added is also features of protection of the citizen against the state. So fundamental rights. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have issues like if is, is the state federal or decentralized? What are the powers for, let's say, the UK, for Scotland and Wales? Do we have a referendum? Uh, what can the parliament do? How do parliament operate? Majority vote, two-thirds of the vote. How do we change the basic document? Um, yeah. Anything else? What can be... The UK accurate? example. The UK. Yeah, Or the, probably, most possibly also um, other jurisdictions that I'm not too aware of. Yeah. Um, well, the UK also has a constitution in the sense that they also have basic rules mm -hmm. but in the uk it's not contained in one special document but it's to be found in ordinary statutes and it's to be found in custom and convention and or in court cases the most basic rule in the uk the sovereignty of parliament what parliament does can and must remain unchecked and Parliament is able to achieve anything at once, that rule is basically a court-given rule. Mm -hmm. and the courts having said, we cannot question the legality of what Parliament does because Parliament is supreme. So, so the court basically took away part of the sovereign of the crown in this yes. way. Yes. And, or, or did it say, basically, since the government is, uh, the, the Parliament is the crown's Parliament, that, no, that it's still fine? Or did they actually, did the court made the parliament way more independent from the crown no no i think it was the other way around that's interesting in the uk because the, the development in the uk was rather gradual while well, they have beheaded some people and executed some people mm -hmm. and have fought wars as well but basically development was from the absolute power of the king that's how it started huh? with the king being absolute power the king could sentence someone could kill people could levy taxes but gradually 
in order to be able to get taxes for his army or for his household, he needed consent of the parliament. And then parliament said, King, if we are to give you money for your wars, then you must concede to us the right to be consulted. And that has gradually evolved into the present day parliament as we know it, but also gradually taking away from the king his absolute powers. And they have sort of moved to parliament. So the sovereignty of parliament in the UK is basically what maybe the sovereignty of the king was in old days. So it somehow saved the monarchy from maybe imploding in itself. Yeah. Kings that have withstood parliament in the end have uh, had difficult times. They were executed or they were chased away. Yes, that's true. So, And that's also the, the Dutch. We, we have been less drastic in getting rid of our kings. <laughs> um, but also the, the, the trend in the Netherlands where you can see in other monarchies as well, so in Belgium, that kings, the, the, basically the only role for monarchs is to be there to symbolize the unity of the state, to give rise to nice magazines with beautiful pictures of the, of the children of the king, and to give some sense of unity to those who live in that particular area. So it, it might be comparable to... Um, okay, we, we're getting a bit too much into detail already, um, but to um, yeah, the, the role the German president, for example, plays in only being a representative organ to the yeah to maybe to third states but not even yeah. when it comes down to political issues true we and in the in the course we compare we ask students sometimes to compare the english queen the dutch king and the german president yeah and it, to a large extent it's a very much a like person if you compare it with respect to their powers uh, the, the, the german president is not allowed to be uh, to be too much involved in politics he can, I think he has a bit more room of maneuvering because he's still a political f figurehead. Hey, someone who originates from politics and is yeah. not appointed for life, but only for, I believe, five years. Um, he, he may, and, and the Dutch king and English queen, then I can't see them doing it. The German president may occasionally refuse to sign a statute. If he feels that the statute is unconstitutional, mm -hmm. then since he takes an oath on the constitution, he cannot do unconstitutional things, so he may then refuse to sign a statute. That will be totally unthinkable in the Netherlands for the king. So it's basically an automated signature? Yes. <laughs> so is in the UK? And so is in the UK. Mm -hmm. And so is in other countries. There are two, I know of two examples in Belgium and Luxembourg where in similar occasions the king and in Luxembourg the, the duke had an issue, a moral conflict with the law, and both had to do with uh, an abortion law, which they had to sign into law. And the Luxembourg Duke had moral Catholic uh, uh, objections to the statute, and the same had the then Belgian king. Uh, and then they found a trick, because you can't see it happen that the king refused to sign and undo a democratic uh, law. So they, they turned in sick. So he said, I'm sick, I, I'm not able to perform my functions. And then in the constitutions of the both the countries, there is a mechanism that if the king turns sick, that someone else take over, takes over yeah. his function. The, the other person, the council of state or so, could then sign the statute. And the king said the next day, I'm fully recovered <laughs> now, I can go back to business. And there it was. So it's again just a 
cruelty mechanism somehow to to not have to say no and then maybe uh, bring the the people to an uproar yeah um, and then for the for the german president it's a bit easier because the german president you have a procedure of impeachment huh? if he yeah. abuses his power you can depose him or you say okay after five years we vote for another one and a king is there for life mm -hmm. so a king cannot be seen really to undo the will of the people as expressed in parliament um Well, yeah, uh, we you mentioned that before um, the state structure, so the, the stru structure of different states. Um, I think you did mention federalism and unitary states. Yeah, um, does it maybe just elaborate on that a little bit? And does it actually make a big difference in everyday life? Or um, that always de de depends. That's one of the problems with constitutional law. If you allow me to say a few words. Because constitutional law is very much related to politics. So I can tell you that a president has the following powers and then we can list them. But that in itself is not enough to understand that president. What you also must know is that the exercise of the powers may differ according to the particular political strengths of that person. Mm -hmm. Um One president, one prime minister is much more powerful and can command much more obedience than other can do. So then he can achieve more, although he has the same powers. Um, but that having said, uh, yeah, we have states and states. Eh? Not all the states are different because they have different backgrounds. Um, and one of the common um, distinctions made is between states that are strictly unitary, France the Netherlands, uh, where there is one central power, the, the, the national government, so to say, the national parliament, and maybe a president in France or the king in the Netherlands, or states that are so huge and have so national, many national diversions and diversity that the argument is we better split them up in territories or they are already split up in territories and we create a national government that is limited and we leave a lot of the issues at hand to the, the entities, the states, mm -hmm. the lender in Germany, the 50 states in the US. Um, but then again, that having said, is the United States comparable to Germany? Yes, it's both a federation, one of 50 states in Germany of 16 states. But the powers of the federal government in Germany are much more expanded than the powers of the federal government in the US, which are actually very limited. So they're different states, although they're both federal. But when, when we look at unitary states, um, yes, but we have in the, here in the Netherlands the, um, uh, oh no, what is it called again? Provinces? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah provinces. provinces. Yeah, <laughs> Limburg here, for example. Twelve. Um, don't they also have a bit power that was delegated to them. I mean, we, we do have the Limburgian um, parliament here. Yeah, we even in sit in, the, in this building. Eh? The law faculty <laughs> is the former provincial government, the building, yeah. Yes, but the main difference is that the provinces in Netherlands, 12 actually, like the stars on the flag of Europe. That's a nice coincidence, by the way. <laughs> but that the provinces have powers, but unlike the lander in Germany, they don't have... The right to the powers. No. They, these powers can be taken away and they mm -hmm. can be given. Whereas in the US and in the lander in Germany, these rights are constitutionally protected. And if the, the federal government wants to change the constitution, they must ask the permission of the lander to even change the constitution. 
So they have the powers and they cannot simply be taken away or limited or restricted or whatever. And the provinces, they could be abolished tomorrow by a change of the constitution, but without having to consult the provinces. You don't need their permission to change, to even abolish them. So that is a sort of distinction between sub-entities in a unitary state and the sub-entities in a national, unitary, in a federal state. Are those sub-entities in a unitary state then the outcome of a decentralized approach? Or is that, again, something else? So a decentralized um, state, let's say. Um, yeah, interestingly enough, the, the Netherlands, I think, it's called the Netherlands, huh? plural. They could oh, yeah. <laughs> have be, they could have become a federal state because it started out in the 17th and 18th, 16th and 17th century as a republic of the Verenigde Nederlanden of the U United Netherlands. Not 12 in those days, but less, but a number of provinces, Limburg not being one of them, but Utrecht, the north of Holland, the south, uh, Utrecht, Gelre. Uh, so there were a couple of independent states and they joined in this confederation of the republic in those days but since 1815 1814 the Netherlands have become constitutionally in a unitary state but it's it, the history could have been different it could have been a federal state if you look at it we already talked about the prime minister um, the presidents or the kings um, what If I mean the question might be a bit um, too <laughs> too generalized, um, but if you would say uh, which ones, uh, which structure is more common in the world? Are there always just the parliaments um, and a representative president, or um, is there maybe like in France a president that has powers right ne next to um, the parliament, or? Mm -hmm. What's the most common approach? Is there one, or is it just completely different from st from uh, state to state? Yeah, the least common that's that can easily be said. The least common nowadays is monarchies. Yeah, we have some of them in Europe, and maybe an occasionally one or two in Africa. I don't. I think Lesotho, a few of those small states in South Africa, um, but no more in South America. Europe, Scandinavia, Belgium the Netherlands, the UK, and then we have it, huh? And maybe we have some inherited country, um, uh, heads of st state in Asia, like in, what is this state, the north of India, which is the, up there in the mountains? Nepal? No, not Nepal. <laughs> Bhutan, I think. Bhutan. Mm. So there are, there are some, mm -hmm. but that's totally, uh, except I think the rule is more like having presidents, And increasingly, presidents that are uh, U.S.-like, Russian-like, French-like presidents, so presidents with, that are di directly or indirectly elected but have a, an important political say, more so than in the German president. Um, like in South America, eh? we have seen the impeachment of the, uh, the Brazilian president. So elected presidents... But then again, one third of the world population, which is in China, they also have a president, but this president is not what we call directly elected, but it's a strong president. So presidential, presidential systems. Are the most common. Yeah, I would say so. Okay. And um, if you would have to take a comparative approach, um, what <laughs> is the um, 
the one that works the best. Then again, the question would be how how do we define works best? True, true. I was yeah, yeah. We do have the checks and balances uh, system in some way, right? Yeah. So um, that that um, one entity shouldn't one organ shouldn't be able to decide everything itself. Yeah. I usually tell my students that the state has to accommodate three interests. Um, one is to remain as a state, so to be effective. Eh? What is the function of a state? That is to preserve security, legal certainty, stability, uh, ensure that the laws are being abided by. Eh? So it's being effective, eh? being able to enforce the laws. That's one thing. A second one is democracy. Other people would call it exercise of sovereignty by the people, but let's call it democracy. That in decision-making, but this does not apply to all the states, but that in decision-making, people feel that they might have a say in how the states is being run. Mm -hmm. And the third criterion would be something like rule of law, a protection of rights of the citizens. So in general, that the rights of citizens and their freedoms are being protected, that they feel that the system is also not only effective and not only democratic, but also just. Okay. And those are the three criteria I think that we should use to assess states, but they have to be balanced. We can allow for uh, amazingly large degrees of uh, democracy, let's say have referenda all over the place, but then Which might also not work that well. Um, my, my, my prime example is always Switzerland, uh, yeah. <laughs> which in, in my eyes, I mean, obviously, okay, we, we have the people maybe um, wanting a ban on uh, new mosques being built. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, this also can't be no, true. the right thing. <laughs> so there you see that having referenda might be wonderfully democratic, but does it really uh, contribute to the effectiveness of the state? Mm-hmm. And the second question is, does it also contribute to the rule of law? Because majorities sometimes have the tendency to to, to undo the rights and privileges of minorities. So the more democracy is not by definition more rule of law. More, eh? more democracy might mean less rule of law, or it might be a less effective state. But diver- reverse is also true. Eh? To be to be very effective in protecting human rights and fundamental freedoms might, in the end, make a less effective state. If you say, for the sake of privacy of the citizens, we we don't want to have access to all the cellular phones and phone records, then maybe that protects the individual rights of the citizen. But maybe you're not that effective in fighting terrorist crimes. Mm-hmm. So it's always a trade-off. And what I see in populist, that the populist argument is, in the UK, for example, the people have said in a referendum Brexit, so it must now be Brexit no matter what. (laughs) No, I think you should give back this decision to a referendum or also take into account that maybe there are other issues to be pursued as well. Direct democracy, that's very uh, interesting, I I must say. Um, Do a lot of countries feature that? Maybe in federal um, referendums, or um, does this power, maybe binding ones, uh, I must say, or does the power rather stay with the parliament? Yeah. Um, or is it maybe a shift to allowing referendum now? Or uh? we, I think there is a, a growth in number of referenda. Uh, that's also partially because some of the r- rulers in charge need sometimes referenda to 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 strengthen their position. Eh? 
So then it's more like a tool of those who are already in power. Mm -hmm. But real referenda, I see it, it, it's on, on the increase. Uh, you can see it in the US, for example. Many states, increasingly more states, now employ the tool of referenda. But I would say in Europe, it's also on the increase in Italy. But many states still don't have it, don't employ it. Germany, yeah. no referenda. France, yes, but very uh, exceptionally. UK, we must not exaggerate, only three times. Um on the on the EU in the 70s, 75. Yeah, there we ha we have seen the problems. <laughs> yeah, election <laughs> system. Referenda. And now the Brexit, only three times. Yeah. Uh, I think I do remember that some German states, one of the federal lender, basically, um, they do allow that, but then it's also non-binding. So yeah, it's basically true. just an, an, an opinion um, to yeah. to the government. Yeah. And that makes it complicated. Eh? Then you ask the people their opinion, and the people say no, or they say yes, whatever, and then as a government you say, well, we don't like the no or yes, so let's not do it. That's complicated, mm -hmm. eh? to have a non-binding referendum. Then why do you ask the opinion of the people if it's not binding? <laughs> <laughs> so that's why politicians feel the need to say it's not binding, but we're going to do it, Anyways. What, no matter what. Yeah. Would, would Brexit have been easier if it wasn't in the UK, but in another European country that allows it? Because we see now the Supreme Court um, coming, not coming up, so the, the, the whole constitutional structure is obviously a bit more complicated, um, but saying that um, May needs an approval of, from Parliament to trigger yeah. um, uh, the, the Brexit. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this, you know, no one could have known that before that well um because there was probably no president yeah there was the the, the i find the uk discussion wonderful for constitutional lawyers um for one thing because this referendum was on purpose not a binding referendum mm -hmm. the earlier referendum on the uh, election system was binding this one was not binding so that's one thing secondly People have argued already in summer 2016 that the effectuation of the Brexit after the referendum needs a decision in Parliament, which I think is a wonderful argument, and I think the High Court was right to have it enforced. Now we have to wait and see whether the Supreme Court also backs it. And the argument is very simple. The argument is, remember, supremacy of Parliament in the UK. Who is the supreme power? That's Parliament. Why? Because it's being elected by the people. The United Kingdom joined the EU in 72 with a statute, the European Communities Act. And the mm -hmm. statute says, from now on, we will do everything what the EU tells us to do and we are so happy to be in there. <laughs> How can you then get out? Then you have to repeal that statute. So if you join with okay. parliamentary support, then you have can only leave with parliamentary support. And it's supremacy of parliament. They are supreme. Yeah. Oh, the, 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 I haven't actually thought about that, that the act is there. Yeah. And this has to be... Re and then, it, and what is also <laughs> interesting, you can also argue that but the, the Brexit leavers, they don't see it that way, that the, what the court did was not so much usurping powers, but giving Parliament its proper powers. Because it said, Parliament, be aware. You have the power. You must be involved. You must be informed. It's you who must take the decision. Don't leave it to the government. The government is not elected. Mm -hmm. Parliament's elected. Use your powers. What the German Constitutional Court has always said in recent years to the German Bundestag. Bundestag, the German Parliament, if there's anything going on in the EU, you must be aware 
that the German government always puts it before the German parliament. Mm-hmm. They represent, they're elected, they represent the German people, so they must be aware. They did it with CETA, they did it with the ESM, they did it with the Lisbon Treaty, with the Amsterdam Treaty, the Maastricht Treaty, all the time. Parliament, this is your call. Don't leave it to the government. Wonderful. Court supporting democracy. It's not anti-democracy, it's pro-democracy. <laughs> yeah, uh, courts are a very interesting um, uh, thing, feel that we could talk about. Um, I've, I've, I did mention the Trias Politica, which came up in both the uh, What is Law episode and the State Caused Harm episode. Um, but what is the role of um, of the judiciary in most um, constitutions? Again, we can't generalize it. Yeah. Um, but is it always a very important actor um, in Europe? Oh. I think I think the judiciary is getting increasingly important. Uh, for one thing, that. One thing is, I believe, the success of judicial review in countries like Germany, which is kind of then spreads over the world eh, because it works so wonderfully well so that others may see, well, we also can have it. Secondly, because the executive has become hugely important. So if you have more executive powers, because there's so much to do for a state, huh? You give permissions and concessions and you have social benefits and everything has to be regulated by the state. So it means the executive is important. So you need rule of law, remember. You need courts. Uh, same goes for, for parliaments. There are so much that parliaments do and they intervene to such a large extent in society that there must be someone who can rein in what parliament actually is doing. Um, another factor is the EU. Because the e- under in the EU, the member states here in Europe, they are part of the EU and they are subordinate to the EU. Mm-hmm. And if you tell someone you are subordinate, then you need someone to enforce it. Yes. Uh, and that can only be courts. And according to the EU philosophy, it is the courts. So they have... The the national courts. National courts. Exactly. Um, but but then, as we mentioned before, we, we do have um, very hesitant courts. Um, <laughs> the German one uh, being one example, um, constantly stating that the, the federal constitution um, still prevails over the European one. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, is that a problem for national constitutions, the whole European Union idea, without changing those constitutions? Yeah, it is. It's a, a constant area of conflict, I believe. So th- this is a very pertinent question, because the the notion of constitutional law sits in let's let's use the word once in sovereign states, <laughs> and sovereign states in the EU. That's a kind of constant conflict, because how can you be sovereign and still transfer so many issues to the EU? And constitutional courts, and particularly the German constitutional court, sits there and has as its prime task to protect the German constitution. And at the same time, it feels that there is a political climate and political decisions and a political need and maybe even an urgency to work within the EU. And then you have to try to reconcile these two, the national identity, the national constitution and the EU project. Would you say that is part of the checks and balances in the European Union even? Yes. Um, the, by, the, by the European Court of Justice, yes. 
Yeah, but but also um, I remember this one case that the German Constitutional Court um, deemed the ooh, I think data collection um, directive as unconstitutional, um, and then the it, it basically came back to the European Union, and they um, because of Germany's yeah, uh, yeah. hesitance changed uh, some yeah. aspects in it. Yeah, but that frequently happens. So in that sense, these national constitutional courts are, by the way, very interesting and. The best example is the German Constitutional Court because it has this and this conversation with its own government, but through its own governments also with Europe about Europe. You also have to abide by basic constitutional principles in member states. One of the nicest examples, one of the best examples, I think, is the Constitutional Court in judgment when it dealt with this ESM treaty. The European Stability Mechanism, eh, where the member, where the after EU the crisis, pull, yeah, after, in the crisis, yeah, where the EU pulls in money in a big pot of money and billions, eh, and all the states have to contribute according to their size and economic uh, prosperity, and then whenever there's a state in need, then the, the the governing board of the ESM, which is the ministers of the EU, they decide to give Greece ten billion, and then the German court said, wait a minute here, isn't spending money part of budgetary powers of national parliaments mm -hmm. and how can you then suddenly 10 billion euro from germany being transferred from germany to the esm to greece parliament that must be your powers and then as a consequence the esm treaty was changed there was clauses added to the effect that from now on every time there is money to be transferred to another state the German parliament is to be consulted and can say no. It yeah. has never said no so far, but it can say no. The only parliament with the this which has this veto power, so to speak. Is in the treaty itself. It's in the ESM treaty. Oh, wow. There was an amendment to the treaty, yeah. a sort of protocol added. Mm -hmm. And I think those aspects are important for the growth and development of the EU and the role of the courts. Yeah. We And by the way, courts, if you look at all kind of Eurobarometer questionnaires. Who do European citizens rely upon most, trust most? It's courts and defense, their armies and the police. <laughs> Not politicians. <laughs> and the politics. No, no. <laughs> they, they, they sit somewhere at the bottom. People may, may cherish democracy, but not necessarily politicians, but they cherish the judiciary. Is that the case only in democracies or in autocracies? I don't know. Autocrees, <laughs> you don't know because they never do this kind of questions. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they, they trust their judiciaries in autocrees. They have Russian courts and they get a phone call from the Kremlin. You have to decide this or that. <laughs> and it's not in all democracies, not necessarily in Eastern European countries. In, there it lays rather with the government, maybe, or it's general... General distrust. Of, distrust. Uh, yeah. Okay. And I had, had a conversation a couple of days ago with uh, lawyers from Poland, and, they, and then we had the same conversation, and they said, no, in Poland, judges are not in high regard. I mean, if we just look at the, um, um, the things that happened to the, uh, I, I think, constitutional court by the government now, um, yeah. Yeah. They, they restricted it in, um, yeah. in high measures. Yeah, that's not, not a nice development that is taking place in Poland. How do constitutions protect its own constitutions or its state? Um, we we uh, talked about Germany quite a lot um, before the Second World War. Um, well, um, the constitution was part of what led to 
further things yeah um because there might not have been um, yeah. security mechanisms um, but how can a constitution act as a protective measure for a state so that a state doesn't destroy itself by making it as difficult as possible to do, to destroy itself so by building in all kind of guarantees uh, like the german constitution says that some parts of the constitution may never be changed uh? but on the other hand couldn't you change this article seven yeah that's always the question <laughs> that article itself can also not be changed okay okay yeah <laughs> so but by having guarantees by having a strong and independent judiciary yeah, you can have mm -hmm. all kind of obstacles or difficult uh, uh, decision procedures in parliament you know with super majorities and uh, two parties there must be in full agreement or referenda or the president who has to whatever play a role so you can build all kind of structures and mechanisms in the end what it comes down to is whether people f want to follow those structures and rules and practices whether they want to seek consensus or not and if there is a large minority or even a majority that by force wants to overthrow the democratic regime then in the end a written document and people who like to enforce that document in the courts cannot stop it mm -hmm. that is what history has taught us so we have to be careful with how we treat all those institutions and uh, we must not be too quick in condemning an institution like a court who sometimes says no to a parliament and we always have to bear in mind Maybe we don't like the court saying no to parliament, but as a feature of the system, it is good that they occasionally do. Because otherwise parliament might think that it is overpowerful, and it is not. It, has to, it should be still within the rule of law. But that is what we see in Turkey nowadays. True, that is very interesting. All the judiciary, um, well, getting fired. Um, yeah, and the president grasping powers... And having a majority in parliament and, and you could argue in a formal sense that everything he does maybe it's in conformity with the law yeah maybe it is but on the other hand i, I could imagine the courts even though they might officially have the power uh, don't have the power in, uh, in, in real life yeah um yeah no that's true but but there you can see how difficult it is um to have a strong president and if you don't have other mechanisms that restrain how he exercises his powers then the constitution might be a good constitution but if it doesn't work on pra in practice I sometimes I tell the students another story it's not original I, I read it in a newspaper once <laughs> it had to do with roundabouts they say why do roundabouts why do they work in the UK because people give way when you go to a roundabout and the cars and you give way and then you know it neatly flows into the traffic and then it's it's a better way than have traffic lights mm -hmm. why doesn't it work in india if you've been in india and you have seen roundabouts <laughs> I've, I've in I've india seen this, yeah. <laughs> it's a total chaos and mess why is yeah, that because yeah, yeah. nobody follows the rules uh -huh. so if you compare roundabout to constitutions <laughs> the constitutions may be perfect <laughs> But if people simply don't follow the rules, don't seek consensus, don't negotiate, don't operate under on the customs and conventions and, 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 and so on, then it doesn't work. We see it in the US with the Republican majority blocking 
the possibility for the president, President Obama, to appoint new justices in the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. I think it's totally outrageous. That's not how a democratic system should work. It probably also would work better if there wasn't just two parties. Yeah, although <laughs> having two parties is also an advantage because mm-hmm. it's more effective. Although it hasn't proven to be effective in recent years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. The problem is you can change it, but when you change it, you get also all kind of other effects which you cannot predict. Yeah. I mean, the German system might suit Germany well, but maybe not necessarily the UK or the, or the US. What constitutions um, very also often cover, or at least delegate further to um, national acts or laws, um, are election systems. Yes. F- election systems to either the parliament or maybe even directly the president, um, yeah. like in France. Yeah. Um, what kind of different election systems are there? Oh, that, uh, that I know. That's probably a bit. Um, well, okay, if you would have to choose, I could say two back, and I could say plenty. <laughs> <laughs> Limit yourself to two or three. Then we start with two. That make it easier. Okay, that's perfect. The, the, I think the first distinction is between uh, proportional systems and mm-hmm. ma- majority systems. Proportional systems where you have a hundred seat parliament. And let's say one seat in parliament roughly represents 1% of the, of the uh, opinions of the population. So a party only needs 1% and then you have a seat. Mm-hmm. So small political parties, small groups in society can easily get a seat in parliament. All you need is 1% of the votes. So that means proportional that in the end, all the opinions in society proportionally sit in parliament. That's great because then everybody feels represented somewhere mm-hmm. over there and everybody's voice can be heard. On the other hand, you might come to that later, um, but then you have 500, no, 70 different parties in the parliament, which yeah. is obviously too much. Yeah, that's the downside. Yeah. I just gave you the advantage and mm-hmm. you point out the downside. <laughs> yes, you're right. That's the downside. The Dutch parliament has 150 seats and I think. At present, 17 one, seven parties. Oh, wow. The largest That's being somewhere <laughs> around 30, 35. Okay. So you can imagine mm-hmm. that is complicated. That's the other extreme from the American perspective of the two parties. Yes. <laughs> and then we had the majority systems. And the majority system basically say, if you want to have, we want the system to achieve a clear majority in parliament after elections. The UK model, the German, the US model. Um, and that basically operates. You have as you have hundred seats in parliament, and you then divide the territory up in hundred districts, mm-hmm. and you vote for one representative in parliament in a district. And the person with more votes than anyone else in the district wins the district. And that leads generally to a two-party system. Ad- advantage: effective parliament. You have a majority. That's great. After elections, no negotiations. You know which party is the biggest. They win. Downside, no proportional representation. People who support parties that have 20% of the votes, they will never make it into parliament. So you don't vote for them. You Mm -hmm. vote for parties that have a reasonable chance to make it into parliament. So you lose out small parties. UKIP in the UK, I think 25% of the people, 35% might support them. They have one seat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you have it. Or the US example with the, the elections for the president. Eh? Oh, yeah. That's, Clinton uh, won 2 million, I believe, more votes than Trump, and Trump wins the elections. Yeah. Yeah, that's a downside. 
<clears throat> you can't have it all. No. And then you have these two major distinctions, and then you have quite a few variations. Mm -hmm. You have majority systems where you can rank candidates, one, two, three, four, five. You have the German model where you have two votes and they're being combined in a complicated manner. Uh, you have a new system in Italy. Nobody knows how it's going to work, but it's also nice as an experiment that the par the biggest party will be given um, so many seats that it has 58% of the seats in parliament after the elections. So even so though the party is 45%, mm -hmm. it will get 58% of the seats. Even if we would say there are 20 parties participating, the highest yeah. party is 25%, they will get 58%. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because they want to have stability in Parliament. I think it's a bit rude, this mechanism, yeah. but we'll see. But maybe it's the only uh, possible way to, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to, to, yeah. to fix that. <laughs> yeah. In Greece, it's a bit more limited. In Greece, the largest party gets 50 extra seats. Okay. In order to create stability, so to combine proportionality and stability. So there's quite a few ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. But it means you can't have it all. You Hey, the, the advantage in the UK is you have a representative in parliament. They come from a district. People in the district, let's say the district of Maastricht, they know the candidate. The, the candidate comes here to talk to the people. You can express your wishes, your longings, your whatever. And then th this is being taken care of. Whereas in a proportional system, many people don't even know who sits in parliament. You don't know them. They don't have don't have a regional backing or background yeah so it's but you can't have it all a, a very interesting phenomenon uh, i think that was also discussed in that course i'm not too sure um that has to do with the majority uh vote um is gerrymandering yeah can you i, I love this word already it's a um, nice word huh? can yeah. you maybe explain to the listeners what is gerrymandering Hoof. gerrymandering very simple is manipulating districts in this majority systems uk and germany manipulating this district so as to suit the needs of the party in charge and as a background the governments are able to 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 set the 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 districts themselves or is the parliament's decision to set this those districts yeah in uk it's different i think in the uk they, they do it better they they try to prevent gerrymandering but in the u.s not very successful because in the US it's for the majorities in the state. So if you have a Republican majority in a state, then this party is capable through the government mm -hmm. to de to design the districts in the st states in such a way that they always benefit their party. So, in, in, mm. so you might have, and that's the word gerrymander, the word gerrymander, it has mander, mander comes from salamander. <laughs> And Jerry is an, I think, Massachusetts governor at some point who did this, and he he devised a district which looked like a salamander, not like a like a square or a circle of people living in one so area. It, it doesn't make sense anymore how it looks like. No. Just really, to to get all the Republicans in one or all the Democrats in yes, one area. Yes. So, like, uh, I mean, imagine <laughs> a district in Germany that would run from Hamburg to a little di little part in Berlin and then moves its way to Saarbrücken and then it goes to one tiny quarter in Munich. Yeah. And then all the way collecting 200,000 people, which have nothing in common, but they constitute a nice district for the purposes of the ruling party. That is gerrymandering. Manipulating. I, would c I call it an abuse of powers, but... 
Yeah. The, the English do it better, though. But the, in America, the Supreme Court is very hesitant in, uh, in, in ruling these kind of districts unconstitutional. There's some but, wonderful pictures where you see snake-like districts. <laughs> they, they, they sort of twist and turn through a state, following sometimes only one road, eh? 20 meters wide. That's yeah. all, in order to capture one or two houses. <laughs> I mean, I, I could imagine the Supreme Court then being hesitant because of the sovereignty of the states, or what is their argument there? Yeah, it has to do with it. So far, they employ one criterion, which they say is constitution, that is the criterion of uh, equal vote. So they basically, they say so far, all, this, all the d districts must have this sort of same population size-wise. Okay. So all districts must be as big as the others. Mm -hmm. And... I think they should also say that there is another criterion of like coherency or absence of manipulation, but they have never employed that. Maybe because they think it's too vague, too, too complicated to, to check that as a court. And equality, one vote, one value, that is easily controllable because you simply count how many people live there. Okay, 500,000. The other district has 500,000. Fine, great. We um, we mentioned parliaments um, sometime uh, during this discussion here, um, but when when I think of parliaments, um, it is purely lawmaking. Um, but there are different approaches to organize those parliaments. Um, we, we've mentioned the U.S., where you um, where you have two, uh, well, yeah, chambers. Mm -hmm. um, the same in Germany. Um, is there always just a two-chamber approach if there is a federation? Because we, I, I already mentioned that in, in the U.S. we have two, sh yeah. we have federal states and the federal government, and we have um, the same in Germany. Yeah. Or is there maybe even a system um, where you have two? Um, yeah, it says Kammer, <laughs> two chambers. Two chambers. Um, yeah. Even though there is uh, no federalism. Um, in federalism. The two-chamber system is very common, and that makes sense because in federalism, one aspect of federalism is that the sub-entities are also being represented in parliament. And then usually how you do it, you have the states, they have one chamber, and the directly elected chamber is another chamber. So the Bundesrat in Germany represents the states, and the Bundestag represents the citizens. In the US, the Senate is for the states, so to say, and the House of Representatives is for the uh, citizens directly um, in unitary states like in Scandinavia they have done away with the, one of the chamber Belgium I must say but Belgium is always the odd one out it seems <laughs> it is a federation some might even say it's a confederation in many aspects but anyway let's say it's a federation it has two chambers but the senate in Belgium is a totally uh, unimportant chamber w with most of its powers being revoked after gradual constitutional changes. Mm -hmm. So that is an example of a federation without a proper, full-fledged, functional first chamber, the Senate. So yes, federations can operate without... Uh, but maybe it's the exception that proves the rule, huh? Here. Or the odd one out. And, and those two um, chambers are really just there for checks and balances or to give both a voice, basically? Yeah, they give a voice. In federations, they give voice to different areas of society. Yeah? So the German Bundesrat gives voice to the states. And the Bundestag gives voice to the people. Mm -hmm. They both have to be reconciled. You, so you can reconcile state interest and, and individual interest. Um, 
A second argument for a, a two-chamber system is that these chambers may act as a check upon one another. Maybe one chamber wants to destroy the rule of law and then there is another chamber that might at least then go against it and try to stop it. So it's also a system of checks and balances here. Mm-hmm. And in unitary states, is it always just one? I mean, I, I do remember, well, we, we do have the House of Lords and um, the Parliament, yeah. House of Commons. Yeah. So the UK, the UK is a unitary state as well, although mm-hmm. it has a kind of decentralization as Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. But it's still a unitary state to a large extent. They have two chambers, but then the House of Lords does not represent the sub-entities. Yeah. As the word, the name says it, it represents different layers of society. It represents, the House of Commons represents the, everyone, eh? the ordinary people, and the House of Lords only the nobility and the church. So it's a different medieval kind of structure. I've just learned another thing. I always thought that the House of Lords um, represented the, the, the lordships um, that are obviously divided within the United Kingdom. Yeah, there's all the, all the, but that's nobility, yeah? Yeah, that's true, yeah. yeah. And, and the only democratic, I don't know whether you can call it democratic, but let's say the, <laughs> the, the, the most democratic element in the House of Lords is that no, nobility titles, so peerships, eh, can also be given by the queen, so by the prime minister, for people who served, served the United Kingdom. So Elton John, I think, received a peership. So he can also sit in the House of Lords if he wants to. Um, so that is a kind of democratic element. But still, it's nobility for life. Or if you are, have a title for, for centuries and you're the oldest born son, then you may sit in the House of Lords. Mm-hmm. But it functions, that's interestingly enough, as a kind of counterpart to the House of Commons. Still. When I look around your office, I see um, yeah, a lot of material on human rights. Um, we we mentioned them before, even with your PhD, um, with the well basic rights. Then, um, yeah, 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 have those human rights or basic rights always been a feature of constitutions, or especially the human rights aspects are now coming into place? Um, obviously, we do have the protection on different levels, mm-hmm. um, but when we really take the look at national um, constitutions, what well, what role play um, human rights or basic rights there? Uh, I think they have not always been part of national constitutions. The first constitution to have an extensive Bill of Rights was the U.S. Constitution, mm-hmm. end of the 18th century. And uh, the first, we would call it maybe modern-day-like Bill of Rights, goes back to the French Revolution with the Declaration of the Rights of Men. So it's a bit far to say that it has always been part of constitution, but then again, before the end of the 18th century, we basically had absolute monarchies all, yeah. over, all over the place. And there was, of course, there were some, some, some documents containing Bill of uh, Human Rights, but these human rights were more like no taxation without representation. So there were um, concessions that the parliament got from the king because the king needs money. So mm-hmm. then gradually recognitions of certain elements of freedom or participation of top layers of society. Yeah. But uh, even though they were existing, but did they, for, for several years, for centuries now, but did they always play this big role? No. 
No. I, I, I could imagine this is just a very modern approach since yeah. very bad things happened in the past. Well, obviously also before, but now the people, yeah. the the, um, the governs um, actually think, okay, we have to protect people more. Yeah. No, I think the, 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 the most important push was, of course, the Second World War. Yeah. And the, the Universal Declaration and the, the, the Bill of Rights in the German Constitution and the case law and, and of course the establishment of the European Convention of Human Rights in its court and national constitutions adding human rights clauses and Bill of Rights. Now that is really development after the Second World War. And uh, also the sting of human rights with respect to what national legislatures can do. That I mean that's not to say that in the US, which was one of the earliest constitutions to have Bill of Rights, that these Bill of Rights did not play a role before 1940, but much more limited. Um, and it took the US a civil war eh, to enforce human rights, so to speak, the, the, the slavery and the abolition of, of segregation. And that even took them to 1954 officially to eradicate segregation in law. And in practice, it took another 20 years. I don't want to start a fight with your colleagues, um, but if you would have to um, make a closing statement talking about why constitutional law is so much more important than anything else, um, why people should be interested in constitutional law, <laughs> what is it, Alvalim? Oh, I'm not, I, 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 no, I'm not going to make a fight with a colleague because... <laughs> no, no, obviously not. If everybody would do constitutional law, then there would be no lawyers for contract law or property <laughs> or, or European law or whatever. Huh? So, no, I think it's important because it 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 um, entails the basic values of our modern day states, societies, governments, and they have to be in order. Because if we don't have those basic structures in order, we will have societies where we don't really like to live in. Societies where those in charge might abuse their powers, uh, societies where human rights are not being uh, implemented or abided by, or uh, societies where parliaments are too powerful, or courts may be overpowerful. Huh? We need structures where power is limited and powers are limited, and where we seek this compromise between democracy and uh, rule of law and effectiveness of a state. And that is a message that students must also, I think, learn that it is an interesting experiment to live in democracies and maybe they are the, the best we can invent for states, but we still have to make sure that the balance of powers and the uh, abuse, that the balance of power is ensured and that the abuse of power is, uh, is, is prevented. And that's a constant battle uphill huh? after elections of Trump or other elections or populist movements. That's a constant struggle to fight against simplistic notions of populism or a violation of human rights. This was one of the foundation episodes of Maastricht Law Talk. We've covered several fields and in upcoming episodes we will also talk about election systems and um, further, especially lawmaking and fields we already talked about here. Alt Wilhelm Herringer is Professor of Comparative Constitutional Administrative Law at Maastricht University. Full professor, I must say. And thank you very much. Thank you very much. Nice for this nice opportunity. Great.